Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, let me, um, let me pray, and then we'll read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and get going. And Father, thank you for today, and thank you for, um, thank you for how good you've been to us. Thank you for motherhood and womanhood. I pray in particular for the mothers in this room who are in the middle of raising children, who are, have raised kids that have left the home, maybe for some mothers that are still praying for the salvation of their children. Lord, I pray for the hearts of those moms, and I pray for the pregnant ladies in our congregation. And in particular, I pray, Lord, for young women in this church who are, who are trying to conceive and with their husband, they're trying to have a baby, and I pray, God, that you would give them grace. Lord, I pray that uh, motherhood, and in general, womanhood, would be something that is highly esteemed here in this church, not just on one Sunday, but every Sunday. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at this text of what it means for men to be elders, and what it means for various servants in the church to serve the church, I pray that you would give us clarity and encouragement and that you would inch us more forward towards being a healthy church that displays your glory. Lord, I pray even today as we talk about this issue that you might cause somebody who came into this room not believing in Jesus to turn and trust in him, to turn away from their sin and believe in Jesus. I pray these things in your great name for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me read 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and let me just pause there and say that in the New Testament, the word elder, in some translations, is used there instead of overseer. The word elder, overseer, and pastor are sort of used interchangeably. Maybe if you're using an older version of the Bible, maybe King James or some other, they might use the word bishop. But those words, elder, overseer, pastor, which is actually not used very much, only a few times in the New Testament, and bishop, all sort of are interchangeable, talking about the same office. And sort of, for shorthand, we most often refer to that as elder. So this thing is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be, test- be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's Paul's words to a young pastor named Timothy about what an elder is. Now let's look at Paul's, very briefly, his words to another young pastor, Titus, just a couple pages over to the right. First Timothy, then Second Timothy, then Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, this is what Paul writes. And this reads very, it's shorter, but very similar to what we just read in the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy 3. This is what Paul writes to Titus, verse 5 of chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so here's sort of the outline of what we're going to do today. There's actually no notes that I'm going to give. These notes for what I'm using will be on the internet probably by tomorrow afternoon with the audio of the message. No notes, but I just want to kind of give you my outline. We're going to look first at elders and what the qualifications of an elder is, are, and then what the role of an elder is. And then we're going to look at deacons and what the qualifications of deacons are and then what the role of a deacon is. And just to, just to alert you to a resource in our uh, resource room, this is a, a very short little book. It's really a pamphlet by Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We refer to, we refer to him a lot um, and has been very influential on us as a church staff. And this is a short little booklet called A Display of God's Glory, Basics of Church Structure, Deacons, Elders, Congregationalism, and Membership. I realize that some of you, like, this might not be like in your alley, but if you want to go deeper into what we're talking about today, there's these pamphlets. They're actually free. We're just giving them away. There's about 40 of them on the main table in there. I would commend it to you. Excellent, excellent, excellent. It has been very influential on me and us as a pastoral team. So let's look first at the qualifications of elders. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and just kind of quickly work our way through what Paul mentions there. I want you to notice a couple things. That as he mentions these lists, this list of characteristics, character traits, it's actually pretty unspectacular, right? It, it's just saying, okay, the first thing is there that he mentions in 1 Timothy 3 is that there has to be this sort of desire, a calling. So that's, that's one sort of unique thing that a man... If he desires to do this, it's a noble thing. But then in verse 2, he rattles off about six or seven things that we hope that we would find in every man here in the church. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. And then one that may not apply to all men is that he's able to teach. And so let's just kind of think about that, above reproach. We just want him to have a good reputation for his testimony to be consistent with his profession of faith. It says that an elder should be the husband of one wife. What does that mean? There's lots of controversy about that in the church. Does that mean that, um, well, there's various interpretations of what that means. Some think that it means that maybe there was polygamy going on in the early church, and that might have been the case, and that he's talking about 
there that an elder should just be monogamous. He should just have one wife. And maybe that's the case. Uh, but I think probably it, it refers to sort of how a man really comports himself just to the entirety of his sexuality, that all of his, he's faithful to his wife if he is married. And if he's married, he's sort of a, he's a one-woman man. All of his sexual energy, all of his desires, he's focused. He's, he's the man whose life is in order. He's not the guy who's flirtatious. He's not the guy who kind of makes eyes at women who are not his wife. He's, he's not the guy that struggles with pornography in our age. Certainly they didn't have that back in the, the, these times. But his sexual life is in order. I don't think it's referring to his status of whether or not he's divorced. I think the vast majority of biblical scholars would agree that it's not talking about whether he's been divorced. And so the issue of whether an elder can be divorced is, I think, a case-by-case basis. I think it depends on the circumstances of his divorce. I think that there are biblical reasons for divorce and there are unbiblical reasons for divorce. And um, so that's a case-by-case basis. But I think that there is a possibility that a man can be divorced and have biblical reasons for that divorce. Maybe his wife deserted him and he was not willing to be divorced, but she left. That would not necessarily disqualify him from eldership. But I think the thrust of that verse is that a man's life in relation to the opposite sex is above reproach and completely in order. And friends, how many of us have seen just these noteworthy national cases about men who have wrecked their lives by this one particular issue? He's sober-minded. It goes on. He's self-controlled. He's respectable. The, the one thing that he mentions is actually in verse 2 that he's hospitable. The word there for hospitable is a Greek word that actually means love for strangers. It doesn't just mean that he opens his home just to his friends, but that he actually has a love for people that are not himself. So he's not able to just sort of gather people around him that are of his same demographic you know, that kind of look like him and are in the same social stratosphere and economic stratosphere as he is, but he has actually a love. The word is, is, is philoxenon. It's, it's like, you know, Philadelphia, the philo, brotherly love, but the word is xeno on there, so stranger. So you know how we, we, we would say somebody that doesn't like people not like them, we would say they're xenophobic? Well, a, an elder has to be xenophilia. He has to love people who are not like himself, and that's actually a qualification of an elder. And then the eighth thing that's mentioned there in verse 2 is that he's able to teach. It's one thing that we won't necessarily see in every man. It goes on to say that he's not a drunkard. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is pretty relatively kind of ordinary standard here. We just don't want him getting drunk. We don't want him to be beating people, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not argumentative, not, not, not hard to be around, not... He's not a lover of money. And of course, then he mentions a few things about his home life, that he would uh, be a leader at home. And we see that in Titus as well, that his children are submissive. I don't necessarily think this means that if an elder has a child that is not a confessing Christian, that that disqualifies him from eldership. Because I think that obviously salvation is from the Lord. But I think that this means that his children, um, in the time that they live in his household are, are sort of in order and submissive, and that his house is a sort of commendation of his ability to lead. Also, he goes on to say that he's mature and humble, that he's not a recent convert, that he's not just a novice who's only been a Christian for a year and has got a hold of, you know, some systematic theology and 
some, you know, some particular ass point of doctrine and he wants to beat people over the head with it. He's got maturity. He has wisdom. He kind of knows, um, knows how to treat people well with patience. And he's well thought of by outsiders. So do you, do you see here that this list is actually kind of ordinary? Like, we kind of want all men not to be drunk and not to be beaten on people, to handle their money well, to be faithful sexually to their wives, to have a good reputation. So really all of these, and there's 15 actual things mentioned there. All of them, with the exception of two, are things that we want to see that all men in this congregation, all men in the church of our Lord would have, with the possible exception of two. One being that he has this desire, there's this calling in him by God to serve the church in this way. And then also, there's this sense that he is able to teach. And then also we see in Titus, where Titus, where Paul writes to Titus and say that he is able to hold firm to this trustworthy word as taught so that he can give instruction in sound doctrine and he's able to refute error and people that contradict sound doctrine. So really, uh, one very notable scholar, D.A. Carson, uh, says that this list is actually remarkable because of its sort of unremarkableness. The fact that we want all men, with the exception probably of those two traits, that he is called by God and then he also has this ability to teach as, as the qualifications for an elder is quite remarkable because what we think here is that really all men should, should have these, these qualifications except for maybe two. So, what is an, so those are the characteristics of an elder. A few things about what an elder is not. An elder is not simply, and this is where our modern English, I think, kind of mixes us up a little bit. An elder is not necessarily an older man. It's not, this isn't a chronological distinction, although it would be great if we had a bunch of old men that met these characteristics, and I would love for older men to be elders at this church, but this isn't a, a sort of age designation. It's not really the sense of the word in the New Testament here. So he's not simply an older male, and this is really important. He's also not simply a successful businessman. This is where I think a lot of churches, as they... As they um, have church leaders and elders. They look at a guy who's maybe he's a banker, maybe he's a construction guy, maybe he's an accountant and all these kind of things, or maybe he's ran a particular business well. And so, well, um, surely uh, he's a good businessman, so he should be able to run the church. And friends, that is not necessarily the case. In fact, oftentimes, some of the principles and some of the leadership principles that much of kind of modern day society and corporate America is based on are actually, actually run... 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what we want biblical leadership to be. So, so this guy is not necessarily the successful businessman. If he happens to be a successful businessman, well then that's fine, but we're not looking for the sort of community leader. We're looking for a man who meets these qualifications, who's able to teach, who's called by God, and who is shepherding God's people. He's not simply a good old boy. He's not just one of the pastor's buddies or a yes man, and, he's, and we, we see here clearly, we believe, although this is certainly disagreed with by some Christians, but we believe that the scriptures clearly teach that an elder is also not a female. And so we get that from primarily one chapter over in 1 Timothy 2, verse uh, 12. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Or to exercise authority over a man, rather she should remain quiet. For Adam was formed first than Eve. And so as we'll go on here in just a second and look at the role of responsibility of the elders, 
to lead and govern and teach the church, the primary responsibility of the elders is to help to lead the church by the authority of God's word, by teaching. And so teaching the whole church is clearly a role that is reserved for men. And so that is the primary role and job of elders. And so clearly by that verse um, and others in Corinthians, we believe that the office of elder is, um, is, is for men and not women. Okay, so those are the qualifications of an elder. Let's look now kind of at the role and responsibility of elders. And remember that elders are shepherds, they're pastors, they're overseers. These words are all kind of used interchangeably. There's three things that an elder is supposed to do in the church. The first is to, is to teach. So think, think, in this, think, of, think of elder as a shepherd. Really, that, that word, elder, pastor, shepherd, those words are interchangeable. And so think of what a shepherd would do with sheep. Really, that shepherd is doing three things. He's feeding the sheep. I mean, if sheep don't eat, like every other animal, they die. He, he feeds the sheep. He leads the sheep from pasture to pasture where there's food. And he protects the sheep from predators and wolves and things that would destroy them. So, so that's the same role of an elder and a shepherd. He is to feed and teach people. And he is to lead and he is to protect. Where do we get this from? Are we just kind of looking at, an, at, a, at a shepherd of sheep and then sort of transposing his roles to what a church elder does? No, we, we actually see this in the scriptures. So we can go to 1 Timothy 4, um, chapter 11, just one verse, um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, just one chapter over. This is what Paul continues to write to Timothy about his role as a pastor and elder there at the church in Ephesus. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. In other words, let your teaching sort of be commended by your life as a young pastor, he's writing to Timothy and a young elder. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so clearly there, Paul is admonishing this young pastor that his authority, his primary responsibility is to teach people the doctrine, the truth, the gospel that we find in these scriptures. And then if you go over to his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, very similar words written. 2 Timothy 4, he says in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so clearly Paul is admonishing this young pastor, Elder Timothy, that his primary responsibility is to teach and that's what elders do. Secondly, they, they lead. If we go back to 1 Timothy um, chapter 5, verse 17, it says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well 
be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I don't think that that means that there are some elders, that there's a sort of special set of elders that just preach and teach. I think that means that especially because they preach and teach and they, they really rule the church, not by their own authority, but by the word of God. And so elders not only feed the church the word of God by teaching them and preaching the gospel and all of the good doctrine that flows out of it, but they lead the church into safety by teaching them the word of God, and then they also protect the church. So go to Acts chapter, well, you don't need to flip there, but let me read to you this really sobering verse out of Acts chapter 20, where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders after he is leaving that church and moving on. This is what he writes in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, about the responsibility of elders to protect the flock. He says in chapter 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so clearly Paul is saying here that after he leaves, there's going to be wolves that come to try and destroy the church. And friends, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. Now, sometimes wolves don't realize that they're wolves, but wolves are out there. And do you realize that one of the primary responsibilities of elders is to guard the church from doctrinal error and from false gospels that are being pumped through our TV and our airways and exist all around us in our culture to guard the sheep from wandering off into those destructive myths that are being promulgated by wolves. And so elders are, really have three responsibilities. Teach, lead, and protect. And it's important to realize that their authority comes from the word, not because they're particularly charismatic or not because they're type A personalities, not because they're um, strong-willed, but their authority comes from the word. And secondly, I think we, we need to also realize that all through the New Testament, we see elders not being singular, but a plurality of elders, that there's more than one elder. So here we have... Myself and Reynolds, and we've had Don up to this point. Now Don is stepping to be the leader of, uh, to be the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. So a church our size, we need more than two elders. We're in the process of training and, Lord willing, affirming a third elder. Um, as many of you know, we mentioned a couple member meetings ago that Doug Duncan is in the process of being uh, trained. And that process is going well. And, Lord willing, here in the coming weeks, we will present him to the church for affirmation as an elder, but clearly, as we grow as a church, we need more men. And so one of the reasons why I'm taking the time out to do this message today is so that we as a church understand what an elder is and what he looks like from the scriptures, and we understand what his role is because it is the current elder's responsibility to put forth men to be candidates for eldership, but it is your responsibility as a membership of the church to actually affirm or deny whether or not God is calling that particular man to be an elder. And so elders lead the church, they feed the church, and they protect the church by the authority of God's word, not because they're strong. And, and listen, they're, they're, not, they're humble. 
They lead the church as Jesus has led the church. As Will read this morning, they lay down their life for the sheep. Now let's look at quickly the qualifications of deacons. He goes on in verse 8. Shorter list, but sounds very similar. Similar. They're dignified. They're not double-tongued. They're not addicted to much wine. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. They hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They should first be tested, and then they should be deacons. After they are tested, their wives should be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, faithful in all things. They also should be the husband of one wife, or their, 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 their relationship with the opposite sex should be marked with fidelity. And they should manage their own household well. Well, this list really looks very similar to the list that we read for elders and overseers. So what's the difference? Well, there's, there's a few differences here. Number one is that the deacon does not need to have the ability to be able to teach in a sort of public sense. This doesn't mean that a deacon can't or won't do some teaching in the church, but that in regards to their role as a deacon in the church, the proclamation and the teaching of the word is not a necessity in their role. And so this list looks very much the same. We want men to, people in the church that serve in this way, to be faithful people who are commendable and have commendable lives. And so now that's the qualifications of a deacon. What is the role of a deacon? Well, to, for that, we, I think a little bit of biblical history, we need to look at Acts chapter 6, first couple of verses there. So let me read Acts chapter 6, where we see the first time that this role of deacon arrives on the scene. And that word deacon in the original language actually means servant. It's just nothing more than that, a servant that serves the church. This is what it says in Acts chapter 6 as this early church is growing and we see the first deacons or servants arrive on the scene. Acts chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, complaint by the Hellenists, and that was just the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching, preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so what we see is these early apostles, and that kind of then from those men came these elders who Paul then appoints these elders in the early church gave themselves to preaching and teaching and leading the church through the word of God. And then as the church began to grow and the administrative needs of, the, of, of serving the church began to grow, they appointed these servants, these deacons, to come alongside the ministry of the elders to help serve the church. And so these men became servants of the church. So what exactly do deacons do? Uh, this is what D.A. Carson, again, that, that noted New Testament scholar says. He says, deacons were responsible to serve the church in a variety of subsidiary roles, but enjoyed no church-recognized teaching authority akin to that of the elders. It seems best to view the deacons as servants who do whatever is necessary to allow the elders to accomplish their God-given calling of shepherding and teaching the church. So deacons 
are to provide leadership and oversight for service-oriented functions of the church. Some, some examples maybe in our context of what the duties of deacons might be responsible for today is maybe the facilities, making sure that, they're, you know, that we've fixed that water leak in the kids' church or that you know, things are kind of up and running. Um, it would be maybe another thing would be benevolence, kind of administrating the finances and our benevolence uh, giving to people that are in need, overseeing finances in general, overseeing ushers, overseeing different logistics, whether it be some particular aspect of ministry. Deacons are task-oriented servants, okay? And, and one of the really more confusing things that sort of happened in the American church, and many of us probably came from a church like this, where deacons had more of a sort of authoritative elder role. And there's a lot of misunderstanding in the church, especially in the South, I think, where there's this kind of thing called the deacon board, right? Which that doesn't really exist in the scriptures, but there's this kind of maybe elected group of people called deacons who are sort of kind of like the balance of power for the pastors. And they kind of meet, you know, in sort of dark rooms on sort of unspecified nights and you know, they kind of emerge from that place with a sort of decision. It's kind of like Congress. You know, we've got the president, but we want to check his power. And so we have this thing called the deacon board, which is kind of like Congress, to make sure that the president can't kind of do whatever he wants to do. And there's sort of like a, a, a bilateral sort of government system where they sort of balance each other's power. But there's a real problem with that. First of all, it's really not biblical. And second of all, churches, when they do that, they sort of make these people deacons, but they sort of give them sort of elder responsibility to be a sort of check with the pastor who's a check of the power of the pastor who's actually supposed to be an elder, right? A much sort of, I think, biblical way to approach this is that deacons aren't a sort of board that sort of meets together to decide things, but deacons are task-specific servants who help to oversee and administrate particular areas of the church to free the elders up who are men that meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9, who they lead the church together with the pastor who's one of the elders. And that's why a plurality of elders is so important. I don't have sort of senior pastor, Protestant, Pope, presidential power here. Like I can't, I can't just say, we're going to do this. And then everybody just sort of, my little staff runs like little minions to sort of figure out how we're going to implement the edict from on high. That's not the way it works. I am one of the elders, and the church is led by a plurality of elders. That we, we don't really call myself, I'm not the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is the senior pastor and chief overseer of this church, and I am one of the elders. And together with the other elders, I lead this church, and my, although certainly I am the leader of the elders, I don't have um, more authority than they do. And our collective authority as elders comes from the Word of God. And then these deacons are task-specific servants who help to administrate various aspects of the life of the church. A couple questions. Can women be deacons? Uh, I, I believe that women can be deacons. Um, and so some of you that may, oh my gosh, I thought this was a conservative church. Everything's falling now. I'm, you know, it's a chicken little. Um, well, if you come from a church that very um, maybe conservative background and you felt that women could not be deacons, um, very likely in that church they were probably misunderstanding what a deacon was and they were having a group of people called deacons 
who are actually functioning like elders. Does that make sense? And if, if, if that's the case, if deacons sort of have this elder authority, then yeah, in that context, a, a woman should not be a deacon. But I think biblically we see that men are elders and lead the church, and then we have a church that's served by deacons who I believe can be men or women. That's a lengthy argument, but let me just refer you to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, where it says in this description, a qualification of elders, it says that their wives likewise must be dignified. Um, another way of translating that, um, again, this is you know back and forth, different scholars would say that women who are deacons is another way that that phrase there, where it says their wives, the ESV has translated it, their wives. Other versions would translate it, more women who are deacons likewise must not be dignified. goes back and forth on that. But even if that is translated as the wives of those particular deacons being described, we see numerous examples in the New Testament, most notably Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where it refers to Phoebe with that deacon word. She's a servant of the church. And so we see women in the New Testament who are doing deaconing work and serving the church. And I don't think there's any restriction on women being deacon because that office of deacon is not an office of authority of teaching the word. That's what elders do, not what deacons do. And so do we have uh, deacons at Crosspoint yet? Well, officially, we haven't used that term, and really that's been sort of my, um, my bad as a leader. We haven't used that term for the first seven years of this church, quite frankly, because I've been scared to use it because there's so much misunderstanding of what a deacon is, but we're now moving into a better, more biblical terminology, and we're currently training a few folks to be deacons over particular areas of ministry. And Lord willing, here in the coming months, we will present some folks to be deacons over things like ushers and finances and various other logistical aspects that will help to oversee those particular aspects of, of the church life and free the elders up to be more focused on the ministry of the word and prayer and shepherding the flock. All right, so I conclude with this. Two questions. And thank you for eating your vegetables this morning. I appreciate it. It's healthy for us as a church. Why is this so important? Friends, do you see how the Bible calls church leaders to handle their power and authority? With utter humility. And contrast that with like the American version of authority and even that seeps into ministry. I mean, come on. Elders and pastors, overseers, shepherds are not the guy with the reserved parking place. He's not the guy that has an entourage that follows him around that is unapproachable. He's not the guy with the flashy suit and the bank account and excess finances. He's not that guy. He's not that guy whose authority is unchecked who meets with women alone, who's flirtatious, who has no balance of his authority. He's not that guy. And we have a, a culture in America where authority often is unchecked and abused, and the Bible is countercultural to that. Yes, elders are to be esteemed. Yes, they are to be given, as 1 Timothy 5 says, double honor because of their ministry of the word. But they, we honor our pastors, elders, teachers, because... They are giving us the word of God, not because there's anything in them that is particularly worth honor. And these men are worthy of respect 
because they are laying down their life, because they are humble, because their lives match the call of the gospel to give themselves away, to be to give themselves away for whatever the Lord calls them to do. And so, so why is this so important? Because it is so important for us as a church to have leaders that model the self-sacrificial, Christ-like, humble leadership that Jesus modeled. Because there are wolves out there that may not walk around in wolf suits and may not even realize that they're wolves but are there to pull us away and destroy us spiritually with all manner of false gospels. And then the second question I conclude with is, what does this have to do with the gospel? Well, this has everything to do with the gospel because in Jesus we see the best example of what a deacon is. Jesus comes to serve, not to be served. We see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples Jesus is the most perfect picture of, of a deacon, what a deacon is supposed to be in his service to us. And we see Jesus as the most perfect picture of what an elder and shepherd is supposed to be. We all read it earlier this morning from John 10, verses 7 through 11. In verse 11 it says, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so, as we as a church choose elders and deacons, what's on the line is not just the health of our church, as important as that is, but what's on the line is a, is a picture of the gospel about Jesus serving, Jesus guarding and protecting and laying down his life. And friends, that's what Jesus has done for you if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Jesus, the chief overseer and shepherd of our souls, has laid down his life on the cross to bear the justice and righteousness and punishment of God the Father and satisfy it completely and remove it for all those who will turn from trusting in themselves, turn from sin and rebellion, turn from false pleasure, and trust in Jesus. Why do we need good elders and good deacons? Because it points to Jesus' work on the cross, which is the only thing that matters. If you came into this room today and you don't believe that, friends, I just plead with you to consider Jesus as the shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. Are you one of those sheep? Do you believe in him? If you're not one of his sheep and you're hearing these words, turn from trusting in yourself and turn and trust in the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we respond in a moment. Well, Father, I thank you for these words that Paul has given to these young pastors. Lord, I pray that as we as a church continue to grow, that you would help us to be wise as we elect and 
affirm leaders. Lord, I pray that in the life of this church, you would give us elders who are men that are humble and Christ-like, who have a steel grip on the gospel, who care deeply about sheep, are willing to lay down their lives and are willing to themselves be devoured by wolves to save sheep. Lord, give us a church full of men that are increasingly looking like that description in 1 Timothy 3. Whether or not all become elders, of course not all will, but Lord, give us men that just smell like that description. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a, a church full of deacons men and women whose heart and priority is serving this local body, not because we're more important than other things going on or other ministries in our city or other churches. Lord, we thank God for other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our city, and we pray for their growth. But Lord, we, we need men and women who have rightly prioritized this particular body of believers to serve so that we together can collectively become a better picture, a better display of your gospel to an onlooking world. Lord, we don't desire to be the sharpest, prettiest, most popular church in town, or the biggest, or the whatever. Lord, Lord we just, we want to commend the words of life. We want to be a healthy display of the gospel. And, and then, Lord, we, we, we leave it to you because you're sovereign over all. We leave it to you to do with that what you will. If you see fit to draw people to the aroma of Christ that is, that is becoming purer and purer, Lord willing, here at this church, then glory to God. If it's your will to just use this church to be uh, your judgment on an unbelieving city, then, God, that would break our hearts, but, Lord, you're sovereign. But regardless, Lord, we, we just pray that you would help us be a consistent picture of the gospel as, as, a, as a church. And, and Lord, we want to do this desperately because we care about your glory and we care about souls. And, and of course, we want to see as many people come to trust in Jesus as, as, is, as is your will because we think that brings glory to your name. So Lord, would you do that? And would you sink this teaching from Paul deep into the DNA of our church? And would you do these things for your glory and our joy? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.